Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome. I, I don't think there's anyone visiting today, but um, if you are, and I haven't recognised that, welcome. Uh, lovely to be with you. We've not been around all that much lately. I think it would maybe decimated is a, an extreme word, but we've had a lot of sickness over the last few months, so it is very nice to be here. Last weekend, admittedly, we had a really lovely weekend away uh, to celebrate my dad's 70th birthday, and um, that was a real um, pleasant thing uh, to do up in Tanunda. I think it shifted from Queensland to somewhere between Melbourne, where my sister lives, and here and then in the end my sister couldn't be here and we were in Tanunda and we're going to do something properly whenever the world goes back to normal. Um, today we're going to continue on our series from 1 Samuel and uh, unfortunately from, through being away I've not been able to hear um, Reuben or Miriam's talks, they did go up during the week but I didn't get a chance to get to them. Um, just as a little heads up for everyone, these talks are often put up on audio and you don't have to wear a mask when you listen to them so cheeky little thing there. Um, today we're going to look at First uh, Samuel uh, chapters 4 to 7, and our title for today is God is King. Um, now, I have decided to add a little bit of a subtitle for today. This isn't from Dan, this isn't from Andrew, so don't write them an angry email or complain to them. You can steer your complaints to me. But today's subtitle is A Box of Golden Groin Tumors. And we've got a picture there for you. Uh, so if you're reading along at home, you probably know what I'm talking about. If not, you probably think I'm a weirdo. This is some very cultish style sermon and it's time to leave. Stick around, it'll make sense, I hope. Um, I recently read a beautiful book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which I have here, uh, by the late priest, author and speaker Brennan Manning. It is not a new book. Um, it was written in the 90s, but it was new to me. Uh, if you haven't read it, please do. I can only describe it as like getting a huge bear hug from start to finish. Manning had a tough childhood and enlisted in the US Marine Corps immediately after finishing high school. He participated in the Korean War and struggled with the trauma associated with combat and also his tough childhood. Throughout his life, despite his love for God and numerous good works, he struggled with alcohol dependence and depression. He would go on benders between speaking engagements, causing damage to both his body and his mind. Manning had a tendency to fabricate stories, and as he aged and alcohol took its toll, this happened more often. He desperately yearned to gain control over his drinking, but could never quite get there. The grace of God detailed in the Ragamuffin Gospel was a key theme for Manning. He wanted God to be king of his life, but never felt quite sure that he was deserving of that. So as I mentioned today, we're going to continue looking at 1 Samuel, but before we do, uh, I think it's really useful to get a little bit of background and set the scene. And I know people groan at my, let's take a broad view pun, um, but much of the scriptures, and, and especially the Old Testament, can be strange and quite daunting to approach, and especially when we take it in short, standalone sections. Um, I think they can leave us, and certainly me, scratching my head and feeling downright confused. However, I do believe that when individual passages are seen within the larger story, that even these odd episodes can help to prepare us 
for what, or I should say who is coming. I really like the way that the Bible Project puts it. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So in Genesis 12, I'm going to go uh, chapter by chapter from here. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham and makes a covenant or a contract with him to bless him and work through his family. Abraham and his wife Sarah, although very old, eventually have a child as God has promised to them and their family grows. Isaac, um, Abraham and Sarah's son, much like myself, has twin boys, Jacob and Esau, um, who have an interesting relationship to say the least. Jacob, who is renamed by Yahweh as Israel, has 12 sons, including Joseph. And throughout the story of Joseph, the family, uh, through the story of Joseph, the family of Abraham, now known as Israel, um, ends up in Egypt, and here they stay for hundreds of years. A new pharaoh or, or king of Egypt, uh, who no longer remembers Joseph and all that he did, becomes anxious about the prodigious growth of the Israelite people. He mistreats the Israelites, making them slaves, and eventually makes an order to have all male children killed. Moses is spared through the shrewd action of his mother, And God uses him to lead the people up and out of Egypt. After 40 years of nomadic lifestyle, the fledgling nation finally enters the land which was promised to them. The book of Judges documents Israel's failure to follow God's lead and properly secure this land as their own. This is spelt out in rather horrific detail. It is at this point that we come to the stories captured in this book uh, of Samuel, which was originally one book but split into two for convenience. So 1 Samuel starts, as we've heard in previous weeks, documenting Samuel's rise to prominence while highlighting the failures of Eli, the priest, to discipline his wayward sons. Israel is continuing to struggle against the surrounding nations. A little bit of history here. So in around uh, 1200 BC, a group of people known as the Sea People migrated from the Aegean region around Greece, uh, likely through Cyprus, and brought destruction to many cities along the coast of Syria and Palestine. These sea people settled uh, on the southern coast of Palestine and after conflict with Egypt, and they became known as the Philistines. As a result of these conflicts, there was a power vacuum in the area, uh, which allowed smaller nations, like Israel, to develop into more localised empires. The Philistines also used this opportunity to seek to grow their own empire, and thus the ongoing conflict that is documented in these stories. So chapter 4 begins with the Israelites having suffered a crushing defeat at the hands of the Philistines, with 4,000 men killed in a single battle. So, how did the Israelites respond? Well, let's read together um, from Samuel 4, verse 3. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, as we, uh, as we know, this does not go very well. In fact, it is an unmitigated disaster. The Ark of the Covenant is captured, 30,000 men are slaughtered and Eli's sons are also killed. So a messenger is sent to inform Eli of this terrible news. We read in verse 18, when he, the messenger, mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. So the ark of the covenant was the place where the stone tablets 
depicting the Ten Commandments were kept. Although the ark had been used to go ahead of Israel in their wilderness wanderings, its general resting place was in the holiest inner sanctum of the tabernacle. It was the connecting point between heaven, or God's space, and earth. To have this captured and taken away was unthinkable. The passage goes on to state that the glory of God had departed from Israel. So the Philistines, having captured this ark, take it and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. This is done to show that not only are the Israelites inferior in battle, but that their god is also subordinate to the Philistines' god, Dagon. So we read in uh, chapter 5, verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, so this is after they'd placed the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's temple, um, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. I'm just going to pause for a minute. Is it just me or does everyone else imagine this thing looking like a dragon? I know the R's missing, but it sounds like that's what it should be. (laughs) Just me. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face, on the ground, before the ark of the Lord, his head and hands broken off, and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. Now my Old Testament commentary notes that the cutting off of hands and head of Dagon indicated destruction. That makes sense. The head of a conquered foe was typically displayed as evidence of his death, and cutting off of hands was a way of counting casualties as well as mutilation that demonstrated the powerless of the enemy. Yahweh was going to make it abundantly clear that he was not inferior to anything or anyone. Adding further to the calamity, the Philistines in the town of Ashdod, where the ark was being kept, then began to develop tumours in their groins. They hastily moved the ark to a neighbouring town, where they also began to develop groin tumours. This was repeated several times, with a plague of rats thrown in to further worsen the situation until the Philistines wisely decided it might be time to return the ark to Israel, especially as no other towns were willing to have the ark come and stay with them. Wise people. The ark is returned in interesting fashion, and I'll let you have a read about that yourself another time. Of note, it is decided that the ark needs to be sent back with a gift to appease Israel's God. It is decided to send back a box containing five golden rats and five golden groin tumours, one for each of the Philistine towns. Told you I wasn't a weirdo. It's here. This book is full of very weird stories, and as one of my favourite preachers likes to put it, the Bible is bananas. The return of the ark is celebrated by Israel and set up in a dedicated site, which is consecrated as holy. Unfortunately, not before 70 of the Israelite people decide to peek inside the ark and are struck down. Then the Israelites, led by Samuel, turn back to Yahweh and get rid of their other gods. The people fast and confess their sin before God and ask Samuel to make sacrifices on their behalf. Chapter 7 concludes from verse 10 onwards. While Samuel was sacrificing burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. 
the towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored and Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the hands of the Philistines and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. The Amorites were the inhabitants of the land before the Philistines came in. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places, but he also went back to Ramah where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. So, that's our passage. Um, and there are three themes that kind of struck me as I was working through this passage for today. One of the things I've been learning um, quite a lot about lately and have pondered over significantly is the fact that Israel were God's chosen people, but this was not due to their own success or goodness. I think one of the really incredible things about the Bible, especially what we call the Old Testament, is the brutally honest depiction of the failings of Israel. Even those termed by the writers of the book of Hebrews, heroes of the faith, are deeply flawed individuals. And Scripture documents this in unflinching and gory detail. Abraham, who's the father and the founder of the Israelite nation, listened to God and left his land and his family to obey God's call. God promises to bless Abraham and his family as he calls him out. But later Abraham complains, uh, and this is from um, Genesis chapter 15. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant will end up being my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He, told, he took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, indeed, uh, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Pretty incredible thing to hear. However, immediately following this, Abraham and his wife Sarah conspire to make a child for themselves, not trusting in God, but using Sarah's maid Hagar. Fail, uh, so not trusting God's promise and causing immense suffering to both Hagar and her son. Moses, who's saved from slaughter through the waters of the Nile and raised in privilege in the house of Pharaoh, providing him with the position and the authority to challenge Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of Egypt. His reluctance to use his God-ordained position to speak out on behalf of Israel is the first documented time in Scripture that God becomes angry. Aaron, the brother of Moses, is the first Israelite priest. The role of the priest was to stand between God and the people and intercede for them. Aaron, the very first priest, disobeys God by building a golden calf for the people of Israel to worship, even as Moses is meeting with God on Mount Sinai. By the time we hear the story of Eli here in Samuel, our hope for the priesthood is shot to pieces. Gideon is the definition of a reluctant hero, almost needing to be dragged into the role God had for him. And King David, who we'll come to later in Samuel, the greatest Israelite king, the prototype Messiah, a man after God's own heart, the father of the royal line, has a spectacular and well-documented fall from grace. Many of you have minds like mine are already humming Leonard Cohen's famous tune and thinking of how Bathsheba's beauty and the moonlight overthrew him leading him down a path of adultery and murder. God did not keep his covenant with Israel because the people of Israel were good, but because God is good. When Yahweh promises to protect and bless the nation of Israel, he does so as an act of pure gift at great personal cost. Despite numerous and well-documented failings, God remains faithful. 
when the Israelite people, led by a corrupt priesthood, misappropriate the most holy possession in Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, causing shame and death, God stands by them. He remains gracious and forgiving and grants them success and peace. I have for many years, perhaps beginning from stories taught by well-meaning Sunday school teachers, thought of these great men of Scripture as superhumans, noble and worthy caricatures rather than flesh and blood humanity. I have now come to appreciate them for who they were, flawed human beings capable of immense good but also shocking evil. And as I make that discovery, I begin to be able to find myself in their story. The second point, despite all that has happened in the past, all their failings and follies, Israel still frequently tried to do things in their own strength, to deny God's kingship. Here, as they face defeat at the hand of the Philistines, instead of calling on Yahweh to help them, they decide to take matters into their own hands. They decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant and try to blackmail God into doing their will. In case we were unsure about the wisdom of such a move, the author helps us to appreciate how bad a move this is by informing us that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, are the ones bringing up the Ark. If these guys are leading the way, you know this is not a good idea. Please indulge me in a slightly long-winded illustration here. Some of you may know the story of the race to be the first to the South Pole. During the era of exploration where robustly egoed white men ran around the globe trying to conquer everything, the Englishman Robert Falcon Scott and Norwegian Roald Amundsen and their teams were racing to be the first to jam a flag in the southernmost point of the earth. To do this, they had to cross vast, uninviting oceans and arrive at a vast, uninviting sheet of ice and then trek across this while trying not to fall into seemingly bottomless crevasses to arrive at a point on Earth that almost no one else would ever visit. If I ever start talking about doing something this bonkers, please keep me accountable and snap me out of it. Anyway, both men decided they would need some animals to help them. Amundsen, having lived on the fringe of the Arctic Circle his whole life, decided to take snow dogs. Scott felt that ponies would be better suited to the job and took them. Remarkably, both men did reach the South Pole, although unfortunately for Scott, he did so five weeks later than Amundsen. Uh, in the world of exploratory bragging rights, second doesn't mean very much. More unfortunately for Scott and his team, this delay, contributed to by ill-suited ponies, meant that they ran out of food, missed rendezvous points, and ultimately they all died. All of that is to say that seeing Hophni and Phineas heading towards you, ready to take the ark into battle, should feel a little bit like Scott loading ponies onto your boat headed to Antarctica. <laughs> this particular episode ends with Israel turning back to God and asking him to take charge, with immediate positive effect. However, in a very short space of time, they would demand that God give them a human king instead. Why? Because everyone else has one. Good logic. We will go on, of course, to read uh, that just as God predicts, this human king project will not go well. Kings will come distracted by wealth and power, serving their own interests rather than those of the people. Israel will become torn by divisions, separate into two, and eventually be captured and carried off into exile. Despite God once again coming to their rescue, the Israelites want life on their own terms. They want to be in control, and this is surely something that we can emphasise with. Our cultural narrative is one that declares, you are your own boss, do what makes you happy. 
Mark Sayers notes in his fantastic book, The Road Trip, that Frederick Nitschke, the famous philosopher, his most famous statement is, God is dead. And that was as much a theological statement as it was a sociological one. Nietzsche believed that with no God, humans themselves must become God-like shapers of reality. In our arrogance, our culture has ignored God, deciding that there is no space for such antiquated views in this age of enlightenment. We sit smugly atop our house of cards until tragedy strikes. A loved one dies, our marriages wobble, our children rebel, we lose employment. The world becomes overtaken by the existential threat of soaring climate and a global pandemic. Then a second challenge emerges. We begin to doubt that, there if, that if there is a God, why would he care for people like us, for someone like me? Like Brendan Manning, we struggle and wrestle to believe that we can or ever will be enough to earn God's love. The final theme is that God is king. No subtitles at this point. When the Ark of the Covenant, a mere symbol of God's power and majesty, is placed in the Temple of Dagon, God quickly reveals who holds real power. Both the Philistines and the people of Israel, especially those who dare to doubt his power by peeking inside the Ark, rapidly discover the power, the true king. The problem with any human king is that they will always fail. Saul, the strong and handsome archetypal king we'll hear about, in the next chapter, fails dreadfully. David Ditto, as previously mentioned, and Solomon, who presides over arguably the most glorious period in Israel's history, becomes ensnared in luxury and excess, only to find himself bitter and empty. But time and again, when Israel utterly fails and cries out for help, God rescues them. He is faithful to his promises, even when they are not. He doesn't need this human partnership and at times we sense the frustration that comes with being shackled to these stiff-necked people. But God the King chooses Israel as his partner in restoring and healing the world. Without him they are powerless, but with, them, they, but with him they can change the world. So in closing, there are two things that I want to leave you with. The first is that me, you, we are not the King. Despite the frantic claims from our culture that God is dead and we are the ones in control, this is patently untrue. As every second news article scrambles to prop up our faltering sense of control by telling us that vaccines or herd immunity or universal mask wearing or some other strategy will return things to normal, our anxiety and confusion grows as COVID rumbles along. We are in fact not in control. As I've previously mentioned in a past sermon, um, that on the Enneagram personality model, I'm a type one. That, for me, means that being in control is absolutely paramount. Needless to say, the last year has been challenging. But the truth is that even when our control is not the key issue, we still often allow other things dominance or royalty in our lives. Not kings and presidents, typically, but things like technology, or money, or career, security, popularity. It is easy to give these things central importance, to trust in them, but they are not the king. We fool ourselves if we think that we or anything else we put trust in can provide adequate kingship over our lives. Of course, the spoiler to today's story that we are all aware of is that we know the king. We live this side of history 
with Jesus, God made flesh, the servant king, available to all of us who acknowledge him. I once watched a short video of the late Dallas Willard speaking about prayer. In his humble yet powerful way, he described a simple prayer that he used to start each day. Thank you, God, that you are God and I am not. A way to recenter and reprioritize as we start each new day. I try to use it most days and I'd encourage you to give it a go. Which brings me to my second point. Like Brennan Manning, when we catch a glimpse of the awesomeness of God and our own relative brokenness, we can feel paralysed. In, in the coming of Jesus, we have become the new Israel. We are God's children. Not because of our goodness, but God's. The Apostle Paul, writing to Titus, uh, and it's up on the screen there for you, states, and this is from the Message Version, which I like, It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, easy marks for sin, ordered every way by our glands, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God our King, our loving Saviour, stepped in, He saved us from all that. It was all His doing. We had nothing to do with it. He gave us a good bath and we came out of it new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Saviour Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with him and given us back our lives. And there's more life to come, an eternity of life. You can count on this. Philip Yancey, writing about his friend following his death, said, Brennan piped a one-note tune, the melody of grace, and his own life both embodied and belied that theme. He more than anyone knew his flaws. He, as much as anyone I know, strove to serve God despite them. I wonder, though, if in his 78-plus years on earth, Brennan Manning truly felt the love of God he proclaimed so powerfully to others. I just want to read the introduction to the the, uh, Ragamuffin Gospel. This is not a book for the super-spiritual It's not for muscular Christians who have made John Wayne and not Jesus their hero. It's not for academics who would imprison Jesus in the ivory tower of exegesis. It's not for noisy, feel-good folks who manipulate Christianity into a naked appeal to emotion. It's not for hooded mystics who want magic in their religion. It's not for alleluia Christians who live only on the mountaintop and have never visited the Valley of Desolation. It's not for the fearless and the tearless It's not for red-hot zealots who boast with the rich ruler of the Gospels all these commandments I've kept from my youth. It's not for the complacent who hoist over their shoulders a tote bag of honours, diplomas and good works, actually believing they have it made. It's not for legalists who would rather surrender control of their souls to rules than run the risk of living in union with Jesus. If anyone is still reading, this was written for the bedraggled, beat up and burnt out. It is for the sorely burdened who are shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to the other. It is for the wobbly and weak need who, don't, who know they don't have it all together and are too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. It is for inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is always falling off their cracker. It is for the poor, weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It is for earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. 
It is for the bent and the bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. It is for smart people who know they are stupid and honest disciples who admit they are scallywags. This is a book I wrote for myself and anyone who has grown weary and discouraged along the way. I read that out because I think that introduction could easily serve as the introduction to this. Scripture is the story of God's unfailing love for his creation, for you and me. We're not kings, we're broken and weary citizens of a glorious kingdom. But the true euangelion, the good news, is that we have a king and he loves us. Not because of our own success or goodness, but because of his. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through the hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.